Some people they drink too much Some people don't drink enough Some people are just like me All right, welcome back to the Coctology podcast, uh, part of the Pull Tab Sports Network. We're back here in the tasting room at 101 Second Street, Hudson. Uh, my good friend Pete joining me again. Uh, thanks for inviting welcome me. back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks. Uh, show's gonna pop around on a few subjects today, but the focus is going to be uh, a little bit of history on the Whiskey Rebellion, which. People will either, they'll, they'll probably have heard a little bit about it. I think some of the key players were a surprise. Um, I'm reading a book called Moonshine Nation, uh, given a book given to me by my friend Mike Timmons. It's been an interesting little delve into the history of the United States and whiskey as it is. Yeah, and if you want the short version or the Cliff Notes version, you can just go to Wikipedia, which is what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia. Have you ever given money to Wikipedia? You know, I've seen the ads, but I never have. How about you? Yeah, a couple times. Okay. Well, um, you're a good supporter then. I am not. Well, I don't know about good supporter. I've just felt the number of times that I've gone there and taken information from it. Yeah. Maybe they, I can't, I can't figure out why it costs a lot of money to just put stuff on a web page, but maybe the data cache that they've got is gigantic. I, yeah, I would think there's always a cost to data. Right. I mean, yeah. I'm in that world and it's amazing the amount of data you can accumulate and the amount of money you have to pay to retain it. Yeah. Right? It's, I Remember, people, it's amazing. Were you in the middle of the Y2K scam? I was part of the Y2K. I made money off of the <laughs> Y2K change. Yes. We're dating ourselves now. Yeah, but, definitely. Yeah. Oh, so. Yeah. All right. Well, Digging in quickly to that, the Whiskey Rebellion um, took place pre and post Civil War. Um, this nation was pretty much founded by Protestants and Anglicans. Yes. Uh, many, many um, German and English and Scott and Irish settlers who all came from places where alcohol was part of the normal life. Uh, you were just over in Europe and went to a brewery where the monks made beer, right? That's right. Yeah. Since yeah. the 1100s, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, roughly Prague. roughly a millennium yes. of beer making. Roughly. Um, and, you know, distillation goes back to the Phoenicians. But Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, they all predate our country by several centuries. I always think about that and the fact of how on the uh, age or the the genealogy of our country, how recent and how young we are, but we think we've got this wealth of history. Yeah. And when you go to Europe or you see a distillery in Ireland, you know, you and I have talked about this. And it's been there for 500 years. <laughs> the stills have been around longer than our country. Right. They've yeah. been using the same pipe for the last 200 years. Yeah. Right? It's just strange and, and uh, interesting to, to study that stuff. So it's fun to talk about this. But when you think that the whiskey itself, uh, it wasn't in the beginning, of course, people used it for themselves, but as they got further away from, you know, the larger 
whether it be Boston or um, Roanoke, Virginia, or the the larger settlements, the further the further into the woods that they got, it didn't diminish the importance of the whiskey. It actually increased its importance because it became currency. Right. Um, you know, it, interesting to me is I always think about I try to put myself in the in the era that you're in. Like I try to think about it from their perspective and what, what were they thinking? What were they doing? And, and it's funny because, you know, we have all these things that we cherish, good food, good, good whiskey, good, you know, whatever it is, jewelry, anything has an evolution that probably started with, yeah, Hey, I made this stuff in my back shed. Yeah. Try this. Yeah. And have someone say, Oh my God, that is fantastic. Yeah. I want some of that. Can I buy some of that? Right. Right. Or can I, trade you as you know i raise pigs how about some bacon right which everyone wants yeah Yeah. for some of your whiskey and of course most of the ones who were doing it either had uh, a history of it or they'd seen it done or they had made it in another country before they moved here but again um you know we're talking about a time when there was no such thing as electricity or roads Mm mm-hmm uh, and the whiskey rebellion itself, specifically the whiskey, we're, we're talking, we're going to cross a bunch of bunch of topics here. But the whiskey rebellion itself was when people in Western Pennsylvania, specifically, started to fight back against a tax that was being created by the federal government. And the amazing part, of course, is that this federal government was created to escape taxes. Right. From the English. And so mm-hmm. um, m- most people out there have probably, not most most people, a lot of people have probably seen the play Hamilton, which I thought was fantastic. But when you dig into this, the Whiskey Rebellion, you find out that even though he's portrayed as sort of this heroic immigrant that rose high into the, he was also a massive douche because he created the taxes. Right. He is he is considered the father of the IRS. Right. Right. Yeah. Taxation without representation. Right? right. I mean, that's what we were trying to escape by forming our country. Yes. And here some 15 years after the formation of our country, these immigrants who are brought a craft from their homeland are asked to pay exorbitant taxes yes. because of Primarily Hamilton, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. No, completely Hamilton. He is yeah. he is con- absolutely considered the culprit here. And the tax was oppressive. It was a dollar a gallon. You had said that when we were talking about this, and it, it really didn't, the present value piece didn't really compute with me. But, you know, as you said, what, did, what would that equate to today on a bottle of Lucky Guy's Monkey Joe? Right, it would well, be... Th- It'd be, it'd be $30 a gallon. So if you divide that, a gallon is roughly a case of spirit. It would be a 5 or $6 per bottle tax. 5 or $6 per bottle. Today. Right. And from a, a, a newly formed country whose main premise was to escape taxation. Yeah. Unfair taxation. I know. And have representatives who can represent them. Right. And so here these people in Western Kentucky were, and they didn't even have heat. 
or electricity or roads, and there were revenue agents trying to find them in the backwoods and their stills to tax them on the creation of this spirit. And the other thing that you, as you dive deeper and deeper, you find that some things never change. They had two ways you could do it. One was a flat tax, which was high, but if you were George Washington, who yeah. ran one of the largest stills, distilleries in the country, you'd pay the flat tax and it would be a tiny portion of each bottle. Right. And so basically they were saying, we're going to tax everyone, but the rich or those who can afford it will be least impacted by it. And the ones at the bottom of the rung, bottom of the ladder rungs would be hit the hardest, maybe even to the point where it would destroy their ability to live. <laughs> and so this rebellion creates, and there were, um, by, by some records, you know, tens of thousands of people lined up to fight the government. And it was the only time in history, at that point, of course, a short history, but it, in the next several hundred years, it was the first time that the federal government was putting together a fighting force to fight its own people. Its own people. And from what I understand, there was an attempt at diplomacy by Washington, but it was more or less a veiled attempt as he was putting together this militia in the right. background. Right. Correct? Yes. So this was a period, and let's back up a little bit. This was a period of like 1791 to 1794, five-ish, is Correct. that? Correct. Pre-1800. Right? Yeah. Like you said, about 15 years after the creation of the government. Yep. Um, and so you were still, you still had 60 years before the Civil War would rear its head. And at the time, Hamilton was the Secretary of the Treasury? Correct. So he was very, very important role at that point. Yeah. Probably almost most important in our country's history because he held the, he held the money in the coffers of the gold. And, you know, the United States was half, like five to 10 million in debt from the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the idea was that he would tax this alcohol, which everyone used, and he thought it would be a quick way to erase the federal deficit. Um, and of course, what happened because of the Whiskey Rebellion, it ended up costing them another like 30 or 40 million building up the militia and the revenue agents to try and co go get the taxes. Um, and on, on ultimately, all for naught, uh, Thomas Jefferson repealed the federal tax on spirits. And so it was never actually collected. Nice work, Jefferson. Yeah. Right. You know what? Uh, one thing you said that we've talked about, uh, which is really interesting to me, is the the fact that in, the, in that day and age, you didn't have printing presses that printed dollar bills. Right. You had bartering, you had trading. Yeah. You had, in fact, I, I'm, I'm not sure and I haven't done as much research on that time period, but was there a common currency? I don't believe there was. Maybe there was. Was it hmm. still, was there a British pound that we would use in that? I mean, I would assume we created our own currency. That's a great, I'm sure we created our own currency, but I don't know at what stage we were at then because most people were rural, the entire country was rural. Right. Um, and so you'd have, so you're, you're a farmer and your corn 
was introduced to us by the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So we started Maize. to cultivate this corn. Uh, and because it was that bartering system, there were only so many people that needed corn. <laughs> and it wasn't like they had modern drying silos. So you either did some of the corn or it rotted and it was a loss. And so these farmers then would turn to make whiskey, which would last forever. And again, ooh, you want to try? Oh, my God, Pete Venuta makes the best corn whiskey. Right. You know, what do you need, Pete? Well, I need lumber. All right, I'll trade you some of my whiskey for lumber. So again, yeah, it was, it was a form of currency for sure, especially in the nether regions or further reaches. And they talk about, in this book that I'm reading, they talk about the dark, corner of okay um you know the country and it was more or less where people would turn each other in to the federal government so that their stills would get destroyed so that they had a still that was uncontested and it became the beginning of that Hatfields and McCoy's mindset where people were killing each other right do not trust your neighbor right and so it was it was crime crime was rampant in the dark corner. I think they're specifically talking about a part of Pennsylvania, but they're also giving you the idea that there were dark corners everywhere across um, the Eastern seaboard. And Appalachia, of course, was mostly mountainous. So there was, there was no way these federal agents were tracking you down easily. Well, as a federal agent, your life was in danger. Oh yeah. Like, they, in real danger. They, not, ta they talk about, you know, um, modern, I guess modern Robin Hood, um, a guy named Redmond, who fought federal agents, actually killed a couple federal agents, disappeared for multiple years. And of course, again, with the, the rural nature of the United States at that time, he could escape for several years. Eventually caught, imprisoned, and then uh, pardoned many years later. And he began to run the United States' largest government-owned distillery. No. Ah, <laughs> oh, the irony that he's now feeding the animal that tried to chase him down and kill him. Wow. So, you know, a rich history of, and mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until much later that we created some of the other laws. Uh, you know, prohibition came about in 1920. Right. Alcohol consumption in both situations, when the Whiskey Rebellion was happening, alcohol consumption went up. When prohibition was introduced, alcohol went up. And I was talking to Pete earlier about the Baptist versus bootleggers. This is a time when people would say there is too much drinking in the world. Let's make it illegal. So who gained? The bootleggers. Right. Bootleggers were happier than ever because now you couldn't go to a tavern and drink in your town. You had to buy it from your bootlegger. And so it was, frankly, it was, it destroyed business for personal opinion and then ultimately drove alcohol consumption up anyway. Everybody felt like they won. The Baptists thought they had morally corrected the country and then the bootleggers right. were happy because they were pounding out more booze. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the role of government in the growth of a nation is so, it, it, I, it's such a study that you could spend so much time on and, and the, just the enactment of legislation and whether it was, 
locally, you know, influenced, whether it was federally influenced and it's in really, it's a trail of follow the money, right? Yeah. If you think about it, like you said earlier, when the country was in debt from a revolutionary war that they fought over taxation and then woke up and said, we're in debt. We have all these bondholders. We need to pay back on war bonds. How do we do that? Yeah. The cycle started over. Yep. Right. Yeah. And now it's just, I mean, now we're absolutely a country that lives on taxation. Oh, 100%. And yeah. I don't think it gets any better for, well, look at our national debt. Right. Right. I mean, it's going to be an interesting. I mean, they just, they, they haven't passed this $138 trillion bill. Not yet. So in your world, that's, this is actually a good question. It kind of brings us um, more to present day. There's a lot that you need to do behind the scenes on a regular basis to report your production. Yeah. Your, I don't think people know, understand, they understand the product that comes out the front door, right? They, they walk in, they get a cocktail, they buy a bottle, but yep. they don't understand that in many cases, correct me if I'm wrong, you're paying taxes when you barrel your whiskey. Not barrel, but bottle. But bottle. Yeah. Okay. So you take your whiskey, you run, you you, you distill, you go through this distillation process, you put it into barrels, you age it for whatever time you age, and that can be years, decades, months, whatever it is. Yep. When you bottle that, you're paying, you're re, you have to report that. In yeah. detail to the government, correct? <laughs> you have to report. So since it's a little bit tedious, I won't dwell too much on it. But the federal government requires you to capture data throughout the process. So when I bring in corn from my farmer, uh, Jonathan Strate, Roosmar Farms, local farmer here in New Richmond, awesome. uh, and a good partner, I have to report that the following week that I used... 600 pounds of corn, 100 pounds of rye, 100 pounds of wheat. I have to report that okay. in, the, in the production report that goes out. Then I distill, after it ferments and I distill it, then I have a production report that reports the creation of X gallons of raw spirit. Then when I move it to processing, which is the bottling of it, because you don't want to be, you don't want, at least they've figured out, they don't want to tax you on making raw spirit because some of that is garbage mm -hmm. as you purify. and mm -hmm. But as soon as you get to the bottling, as soon as it goes in a bottle, you report to the federal government that I've bottled this many gallons and you pay an excise tax on those gallons. Okay. So you haven't made a dollar on it, but you've paid taxes on it. And they expect you to pay your taxes immediately? Quarterly. Quarterly. At my scale. If I was Jim Beam, they're paying monthly. They're paying monthly. But I pay quarterly. And then you turn around and if I sell it to my distributor who sells it to a liquor store, the, you know, then there's taxes on that. Mm -hmm. If I sell it to you in a cocktail, then of course I collect sales tax. Mm -hmm. I don't have to pay tax for the use of the bottle because I've already paid the federal government to bottle it. Right. Now I have to pay the state when I sell it. Wow. And there, there's an old bad joke, but... Um, that says when you're a distiller, 50% of the time you're doing paperwork 
and 50% of the time you're cleaning your equipment. <laughs> it sure feels like that <laughs> because I, I know you and I have spent a, a fair amount of time uh, looking at software or things that there are that can help you from a detail perspective, keep track of everything you're doing. And I was quite frankly amazed at the amount of regulation that you need to go through. And I'm surprised, you know, it, it makes sense that they would have you report on what's going into the production process. Yeah. Because if they're not seeing output right. that matches that input right. at a certain ratio, you're more than likely going to see someone show up at your doorstep and yeah. ask you about what are you doing? Right. Where is the rest of this? Going? <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it is uh so the science of distillation is pretty amazing. Um, most people are probably unaware that alcohol is, has a different weight than water, which is why a hydrometer, which is that glass thermometer looking thing. If you put that in alcohol, it will tell you what the proof is because mm -hmm. there's a weight in there that says it should fall this far if it's water, but if it's alcohol, it'll only float to here. And that'll tell you how much of the liquid is alcohol related. Um, so for our, for our listeners who probably know more about booze than we do, but let's pretend they, they let's pretend I'm a fifth grader. Yeah. When you're talking about proofing, when you distill a grain alcohol or any type of alcohol, distilled alcohol, there is a percentage of alcohol that comes out of the still. Right. And then you process that in some way, shape, or form. Correct. It goes in. So everybody knows, thanks to Luke Bryan, that, you know, corn makes whiskey. Corn does make whiskey. But actually in, in this, we actually go from raw grains to uh what is known as beer mm -hmm. and you know technically it's the same thing brewers are doing but we do it in a slightly different methodology and then you take that beer and distill it to make whiskey so if you distill beer you make whiskey if you distill wine you make brandy mm. and both of those things create a byproduct which can be further distilled to make neutral which is where vodka and all other clear spirits come from so with that in mind, it goes into the distill or into the copper still at about 12% alcohol and comes out at about 140 to 150 proof. Wow. And so so you don't see when we you and I started talking about this process long before you decided to do, do this, this, which is awesome. Uh I my expectation was you start the distilling process, you put the bottle under the spigot and you put a cork on the bottle and you put it on the shelf and it's 80 proof. Right. Right. 40% alcohol. Yeah. I don't think I knew what the hell I was doing when we talked about it way back then either. But what I do know is, um, you know, when those guys in the back hills were making it yeah, and they had, you know, wood fires Underneath, they were they they probably didn't use malt. I don't know when they figured out how to malt. You know, you can't. Well, I shouldn't say can't. I don't think it's easy to malt corn, but so we use malted rye because malt is actually important in whiskey. But when it was coming off of those single, simple wood-fired stills, I don't think it came off at 140 proof. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I was saying to you earlier. What did the whiskey of 1790 taste like? I would like to know. 
Because I bet it was rough. Oh, well, when I look at your distillery and what you've put into it, just from a physical, mechanical engineering perspective, two things kind of come to mind for me. One, you need a clean, strong source of water. Yeah. Two, you have a lot of electrical panels back there. Yeah. Right? Now, both of those were lacking or weren't even existent Didn't exist. in 1791. Right. 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 So the product that these folks made, um, mostly probably for personal usage and then understanding that, oh, I, this is a currency I can trade. Yeah. I can't imagine the amount of thought and, and dangerous, too, because you've told me there you have to do certain things to to that are required, but also obviously um you know they're they're it goes without saying that they're you you need to do this make sure that you're not poisoning people right how yep. did they do that without hydrometers and and well i think they just poisoned people at first <laughs> and then eventually figured out we got to throw this early part away um but yeah they didn't have you know if you if, if you've ever watched moonshiners they'll take the jar and they'll shake it and they say they can tell the proof based on the bubbles that are created. And, and I, I mean, I want someone to teach me that, first of all. Right. But second of all, um, like I, some of it I get. When we run, there's three parts, four parts of every distillation run. The first part is four shots. That's that moonshiner's poison. You throw that away. Then there's hearts or heads, excuse me, is next. And uh, ironic or not, it's where headaches come from, I'm told. Oh, which is why the seven ninety nine bottle of vodka is probably not your best choice. Right. Right. Uh, then you have the hearts, which is the good stuff. Uh, and then you have the tails. And when you get to the tails, when you're moving tails around, they foam. There's like foaminess to them. Okay. And that's lower proof. That's about somewhere between, it, it, you take it all the way down to like 30 proof, but it usually ends up being a large quantity, right about 95 to 100 proof. And it literally looks soapy. And so I guess if I took that and shook it up and put it next to a 140 proof jar and shook it up, I can tell the difference. Right. I don't know that I'm skilled enough to tell what the numbers are. But. So I, I don't know if, if you've talked about this on past podcasts, but uh, that process is so interesting and uh, it's so technical. And I don't think people understand, or maybe they do, maybe your listeners understand that there's a, a, f there's there's a yield that comes out of what you make that's yeah. nowhere near what you've put into the process. Yeah. And there's a difference in a quality spirit because when you talk about heads and tails, that's the front end and the back end of the distillation process yeah. where the hearts in the middle are really the good spirit, yeah. right? The spirit right. that you that a premium spirit. And and, then, and there's a it's well known that you can't make great whiskey with temperature like by, by making your decisions where to start and stop at the temperature. And you can't make great whiskey by deciding what the proof is. Okay. And so there's really an art form to cutting. And I'm not, I want to keep getting better. And I, you know, I hope I'm making good whiskey for those of, those of the people out there who've tried it. You know, they tell me it's good, but I hope to keep improving. But, but I know that each run is different. Uh, sometimes you're looking at it and you're like, I'm not sure I'm in to the hearts yet. And so you'll wait and you'll wait. 
And then you'll say, I'm well past the start of this run. I'm going to take the tails starting here. Uh, and it's an art form. Um, and so there's a little bit of that um, that goes into that. It's there's I don't want to pretend I'm some sort of artist, but it is a personal thing. It's not there's not a process or a chemistry or a you're not doing it the same every time. Yeah. So I think of it as there's an art to the science and there's a science to the art. Yeah, that's a great way of right. saying it. Probably that's better than what I just said. So thank you. <laughs> so, there you go. You can just put that on your logo and, you know, I'll just take, well, like the federal government, I'll take a buck or 30 bucks every sweatshirt you sell that has that logo oh, on Perfect, it. perfect, perfect. A bunch of them. Art to the science, science and the art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. It might be a sweatshirt. <laughs> I don't think it is. Maybe at MIT it might be. But I don't know. <laughs> well, they're all about science. So Timmons, is this a shot at Timmons? Yeah, just a little bit. You know, he gave you the book and I'm just, yes. quite frankly. Frankly. Yeah. Well, you know, here, since we're doing this, um, a lot of people ask, there's so many misnomers about bourbon in general. But yeah. People will say it has to be made in Kentucky, right? No. It has to be made in Bourbon County? No. Okay, so what makes bourbon? All right, so there's five things. And I actually, so one of the experts, he's not self-professed, but definitely he is an expert. His name is Fred Minnick. Freddie. Uh, and he's written many books. Rich mahogany smells of leather. Yes. Uh, but um, I actually got into so an solid. engagement with him on Instagram, I think, once about whether or not Jack Daniels was bourbon. Okay. And he put it out to his followers and someone said, of course it's bourbon. And I said, whether or not it's technically bourbon, Jack Daniel went out of his way to call it Tennessee whiskey. And he introduced what's called the Lincoln County process of charcoal filtering before it goes in. And it's, I think it's maple charcoal before it goes into the barrel. So if Jack wanted it to be called Tennessee whiskey, then I'm going to call it Tennessee whiskey. Right. Fred said, technically it's bourbon. Technically it's bourbon. So there are you said there are five, five things, things that make up bourbon. Right. And, and the first one was established by the United States government that it has to be made in America. It's an American spirit. Okay. So if you're in Canada, you cannot technically make, make bourbon. bourbon. And in fact, I can't make Canadian whiskey either for the same reason. Makes sense. So it has to be made in the United States. That's one. The second one is that it has to be 51% corn by weight in the mash bill. So if you have a thousand gallons or thousand pounds of grain, grain. 510 of them need to be needs corn. to be corn. Okay. So bourbon is always a majority of corn base right. in the mash. And most of the most popular bourbons are high 80s. Well north of the 51%. Oh, okay. The third one is that it has to come off the still. So it's coming out of the parrot, which is the little thing poking off the edge of the condenser that the spirit actually pours out of. That's called the parrot. Has to come out of there under 160 proof. And I think the reason that they do that is so that you don't take super high proof spirits like grain alcohol can mm. get to. Right. Everclear is 190 proof, 195 proof. You can extract more flavors out of anything the higher the proof. And so I think it's a protection against sort of 
cheating flavor from the barrel when it's not good product, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I, I could dig further into that. That's three. It has to be under 160 when it's off the still. Number four is it has to go into the barrel under 125 proof. And again, I think that's further of that. You're protecting. So it needs to come off of the still at at lower than 160. So less proof. than 80% alcohol. Proof. Okay. And it needs to go into the barrel at less than 125 or 62 and a half percent alcohol. So you cut it in between if you would with want, water, with water in between. Yes. The time it comes out of the still. Yeah. And goes into the barrel. Yes. And then the, f the fifth one is simply that it has to go into a unused American white oak barrel. Unused. Unused. So you cannot continue to make bourbon in the same barrel. Right. And so what's happened is the Scotch and Irish whiskeys suppliers of the world, who are, of course, on islands with a significantly diminished amount of trees. Right. They buy used bourbon barrels and repurpose them to age theirs. I think Canadian whiskey can do both, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Is there any restriction from a bourbon perspective on the size of the barrel? No. In fact, like one of the things that I tend to point out to people is you noticed in those five things, I never once said how long it needs to be in the barrel. I was, I thought, I, I thought if you would ask me what number five was, I would have said a minimum of two years. Yeah. Because you always hear that. Yeah. And it's wrong. Yeah. Now there are specific whiskeys that have been created subsequently. So like Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, and you'll see that on a few bottles that are out there. That's minimum of two years. Minimum of two years. But that's not just... But that's a different, that's a specific type. Is that a, so when we talk about these rules of bourbon or these rules of, you know, Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, right. is there a governing body out there? Is there a spirits yeah, collective yeah. that decides what these governing rules are? What, where does that come from? You're usually arguing with the federal government if you're trying to create a new designation. And that's what Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey is. Someone said that we're calling ours Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. And that means it's spent two years in a barrel at a minimum. Okay. Now, this is the part that gets interesting, in my opinion. Barrel sizes vary mm -hmm. from 53 all the way down to this, you know, that you can even do smaller than this little three liter bottle or barrel that's sitting on our table here. Uh, and everything about aging is how much surface contact there is with the inside of the barrel. So if you've got a 53 gallon barrel. Right. It takes those 53 gallons a lot longer to come in contact with the barrel than it would a three liter barrel. I and so the Coopers, the guys who make the barrels would tell you that it requires about a month for every gallon that the barrel holds. About a month. So rule of thumb. Yeah. So if you've got a 500 gallon barrel. 500 months. Okay. So it's 40 years. When I, when I think about the mass producers of the world, yeah. makers, Mark, yeah. you know, the folks that are doing volume. Yeah. They're doing 53 to 60 gallon barrels. Okay. And Which they is, have warehouses full of those. Yes. In fact, Jim Beam, I've said this before on the pod, but they, they built a 1 million barrel warehouse like a couple of years ago. 1 million barrels. It's hard to even comprehend. 53 million gallons of spirit. Um, now, this is the part that gets interesting. So Kentucky straight bourbon, two years in a barrel. But 
I almost guarantee you that those guys that created that rule mm -hmm. are using 53 gallon barrels. And if 53 gallon barrel needs four plus years to age, mm -hmm. then a two year requirement isn't that special. Isn't really, yeah. So Doesn't why would you want to, the only reason you'd want to call your Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey is if you don't want to age it all the way to completion. And the way that now, so now you can, so money grab. Yeah. Well, or marketing, 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 marketing is fine too. Don't get me wrong. We, right, right. we, I saw a bottle in the liquor store the other day that said 10 times distilled. I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> no, what, you're, what? you're using a technicality here because if you distilled 10 times, you're going to lose 10 to 20% every time you distill. Mm -hmm. You got nothing left. You're going to sell that for a lot yeah. if you want to recoup your money. And usually it's the least expensive. So that brings up a really good question for you is, you know, there's this there's this perception out there that Tito's is this wonderfully premium vodka, mm. right? And I'm not using Tito's or picking on Tito's, but, and I, I've been with friends and spouses of friends who have said, well, you know, it's distilled six times before it goes into the bottle. And I've always thought about that, but never really had it explained to me. And in understanding your process and how much care and feeding you give your distillation process and what, what you're doing here, I have a hard time believing that they're at a mass level of what they sell and the, and the, the demand that they have, that they're running something through a still six times before they bring it to market. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure where the legalities of that description are. I do know that I shouldn't say I do know it's my understanding now that all Tito's is made in Indiana anyway. Mm -hmm. I, we had talked about this. I mean, it's yeah. not like you could drive to an ethanol plant in the middle of North Dakota. And if you get a gallon of pure ethanol, add water to cut it to 80 proof, you're going to have wonder, wonderfully clean, flavorless vodka. <clears throat> right. Is that romantic? Doubtful. Is it, you know. And so making pure ethanol, I don't think is super difficult. I think finding, finding a product that both has flavor and you enjoy, I think is, is the harder part, right. which, you know, there are plenty of people out there who drink vodka straight, but our specialty here really is more about making craft cocktails anyway. You know, we started making our own bitters. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about bitters too. Cause I, I don't know if it's on the subject matter you and I were going to talk about today, but I, that's one of the things when we, when you, when we talked about doing this is I, I wanted to hear about bitters because I know you go through that process and, and make your own bitters. Yeah. Well, I've started to. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know much about that. So it's kind of fun to, in this forum to understand it because everyone knows there's bitters, there are bitters in drinks. I don't think a lot of people know even what bitters are. I don't think a lot of people know what bitters are either. Um, you know, the, the most common brands I see, Agnostura, Angostura, mm -hmm. uh, Hella. Um, there's one now that I'm slipping my mind, but you're basically taking 130 proof alcohol. I mean, most people don't even know bitters are actually alcohol. I, I did not. Yeah. And the alcohol is how you extract the flavor 
most aggressively. It's how you make the most flavorful bitters. Okay. So you add in, you know, orange bitters. It's literally just orange peel and alcohol and maybe a couple other tiny things. So one of the, one of the um, sort of experiments I did was taking all the botanicals that we use in our gin and putting them in neutral. So I could taste what coriander bitters taste like. Mm. juniper bitters taste like right mm -hmm. and this was after brian nation who is over at o'shaughnessy keeper's heart um gave us a tour and he's a very 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 knowledgeable guy i obviously was the lead distiller at jameson irish whiskey um and through our friend marty schreier mm -hmm. um, he became a friend of mine and so it was nice to be able to ask a question where you weren't wondering if he had the right answer because he had the right answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he suggested to me to take the gin and break it all the way down to those single botanicals so I could find out what I loved most and what I didn't like most. And I went into that process thinking that I didn't like the flavor that coriander brought to the party. Okay. I was 180 degrees wrong. <laughs> and coriander brings this light citrus flavor. And coriander, of course, is the seed form of uh, cilantro cilantro so they're the same plant right but how is that possible I, I, i've often wondered that looking at spices in my cabinet quite frankly anyway that was a wonderful little so then i thought oh my god maybe i should be making because I, like when i tasted what coriander tasted like in a bitter form i'm like i could make bitters this would be a nice addition to a couple mm -hmm. cocktails. So we started using it in a couple cocktails. Okay. And then my friend, Dr. Neil Anderson, who's the, one of the chief plant scientists at University of Minnesota, and his cohorts, Andrew and Liz, they started coming in and we became friends and they brought me black walnut shells. <clears throat> and black walnut liqueur is actually made from the unripened black walnut. But I thought it'd be fun to see what the shells do mm -hmm. to spirit. And they create this beautiful mahogany color and there's a nice nutty note but it's not super flavorful we use it in a couple of our drinks and it brings that nutty note to it and really nice color mm -hmm. but then i decided i was going to add some clove to it and then a cinnamon stick and i might blend in a couple of these citrus things and all of a sudden we've got this bitter that is really flavorful it's rich yeah it's flavorful and it's yeah so how many flavors of bitters are you currently experimenting with or making? I probably have eight to 10 of them back there right now. Everything from simple um, bitter orange to a floral bouquet of, I think it has rose hips, um, chamomile, uh, elderflower. Wow. Oh, and... And one other one, I'm sorry that I can't remember it, but that's, so that one's purely floral. And I, I actually, you know, have you ever heard of bitter shots? You ever I, been up to Washington Island, north of Door County? I have not. Apparently it's a thing. Okay. Uh, and so you do a shot of bitters and of course it's bitter. Well, just a tad. Yeah. But it's, and then you get a little card that you're a card carrying member of the bitters club. So bitters, just to clarify, bitters actually have a high alcohol content yeah which is why you see them only put like five or ten drops a couple dashes yeah but they add so much complexity when you think i think angostura is like 18 botanicals in it wow and so it, it it's it's what if you take a clean 
gin and a clean tonic, add a lime, and then the depth that you could get from 10 drops of bitters, like it, it, it makes a more complex and complete cocktail. And that's one of the reasons why these guys who are super, super serious about making uh, craft cocktails use a lot of different bitters. And we'll probably have an entire row of 20 behind our bar before too long, just because I'm kind of geeking out about it right now. Well, and that, you know, kind of a commercial for you is the process that you go through in not only making the actual spirit that goes into your cocktails, you also make the syrups that we've talked about in the past. Yep. And now you're going to be making the bitters as yep. well. Yep. So... When people walk in and they order a cocktail, this is a family recipe of bitters, syrup, yep. spirit that you've put a lot of care and feeding into and a lot of time and effort. Yes. Right? A great deal. Yeah. So we should raise prices 40% <laughs> just because of that. <laughs> no. But I, I want people to understand that they're, they're not – they're not getting an average normal cocktail. They're getting something that was built with some care and some feeding and some love and some trial and error and some understanding and trying to think about flavor profiles. Like you went through this whole black walnut coriander to me that, uh, and I, I love to cook as you well know, and yes. I love to experiment with things, right? I don't go to those depths. When, you know what you do, you know, but I, you, you don't write it down. Oh, that tastes good. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, I love it. That's, can I do that again? Probably not. Right. You have to continually repeat that process. And I try one of the things they do teach you. Well, they is a, it's a Royal they. No, Peter, Nome. those people, Peter, Nome, <laughs> who you got to go with me up yeah, to yeah. Northern waters. You know, he told me take copious notes because if you ever make something amazing, you want to be able to make it again, make it again. Right. Yeah. And, you know, things change. Obviously, one batch of juniper berries is different than the next batch. So that's it's actually one of the great things about small batch mm -hmm. is there is some uniqueness. And it goes right back to that art is science. Science is art. Mm -hmm. You know, our cocktails are and I, I won't say it. It's not shameless, but they're art. We literally mm -hmm. you can't recreate these in the wild because you don't have all the things you can make something like it. And we hope we inspire people to, to play with these. I think bitters make almost every drink better. I didn't think that before. One of the things I love about the experience here at the distillery is when you have a group of more than four people and you encourage everyone to try something different for their palate and COVID aside, you get everyone to try their different cocktails yeah. that they've ordered because you know, if you trust the people and you're close to them. Try, yeah, well, try, we always try, just try. tell them, take a straw worth right. if you don't well, want to sip on the and glass. And you're more than willing to offer them six straws. Oh, God, I've seen you sure. do it, right? For sure. Hey, if you guys all want to try each other's cocktails, here's a straw. I definitely encourage four people at a table to get four different things if they're interested in finding out about the menu. And some people get four old fashions and say, thanks, maybe next time, which is great. Which is fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Now, one of the things I think that I've been... Like we had a, we had a gallon here last night and she said, before we met you, your distillery, mm -hmm. my husband and I hated gin. Mm. Hated it. Mm -hmm. Now the only thing they order are gin cocktails. 
Now we've been told by people that are more expert than me in the, in the world of uh, distilled spirits that we have an, uh, a vodka lover's gin or an approachable gin. And part of it is, you know, I didn't embrace, I, although I probably had my share of Tanqueray and tonics, I didn't embrace the whole pine tree in your mouth. <laughs> right. Um, I think someday I'll probably have one, but right now mine are more floral, citrus, or light on both based cocktails. I would agree. I, I, I noticed that when you first started making gin and you stuck kind of that to that profile, that flavor profile of you're not going to get a tangeray, I'm standing in the middle of a pine forest taste. That's right. right. Now, maybe one thing I'm slightly disappointed with, and it's driven, again, it's all the way back to this COVID supply chain, but I can't get my hands on tonic from anyone except the one that we have. Really? Yeah. Fever Tree. Hey, I'd love to buy your products. Here, here's our wrap. Hey, I'd love to get some of this product. Crickets. Hey, no, seriously, I want to get some of this product. Crickets. Hmm. So you want to upgrade your tonic? Well, I'd like to offer other versions. I suppose I could just go buy it at Costco or something, but it's, we already, we already do a lot of that. It's hard. Um, but yeah, you know, elderflower tonics. Um, I, th I think a peppercorn tonic would be amazing. Well, and if, if you think about it. Maybe I'll start making my own tonics. I, I was just going to go there. Uh, you're already hitting the, the, the bitters, mm. the syrups, the tonics. My, you know, that next step. I don't know. Maybe. You got a lot on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing, no one's ever accused me of my unwillingness to spread myself thin. <laughs> right. Right. Um, let's see. I got a couple things I want to touch on before we wrap. Um, I think I mentioned it in the last pod with Charlie that we've started the Jackalope Society. Yeah, I was going to ask about that yeah. because you mentioned it today when I came in and I hadn't been keeping up to date on 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 your newest memberships or whatever they are, but it yeah. sounded interesting. So tell me about that. Yeah, and I know it's not going to hit everybody. It's for our biggest supporters. It's a it's $500 for a year. Okay. So it's 12 months. Whenever you sign up, doesn't matter. It rolls for 12 months. And it gives you 10% off on every drink you ever buy. You and your wife, you and your husband, whatever. Yeah. You and your, you know, significant other. Mm -hmm. I don't, doesn't matter to me. But you and as a couple, you'll get 10% off your drinks. Uh, wives and wives, husbands and husbands. I love all of you, as you well know. Okay. Um, boyfriend, girlfriend. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Boyfriend, girlfriend. Household. Same household. Nope. No. Spouse. You and a significant other. 15% off all swag all the time. 20% off all bottles all the time. Access to specific things. And that's what I'm hitting on. This month, we're going to do a gin class. Um, I think I'll do two 10-person classes. So it'll be five couples at each class. Two classes. I'm going to offer it first space. to the jackalope people. And if it fills, it'll just be them. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, I'll open up the open spots to the public for a higher price. Okay. So they'll get a discount on that. And we're going to go through and you're going to get to pick your botanical. So all those bitters that I've got back there, mm -hmm. you'll build your cocktail, your gin profile after we do, as we do the class. We'll talk about what botanicals bring to the party. We'll talk about 
the ratios that gins generally have those in it. We'll talk about some of the more popular gins that are out there and what they have in them. Mm -hmm. So essentially we're going to, you're going to learn everything that I can teach you about gin in a class. It will include gin and gin drink of your choice as well. And then at the end, you'll have the ability if you want to buy up to uh, from a minimum of a case, but up to five cases of your gin, your gin, I'll make it to your flavor profile, curate it, put it in the stainless that it needs for a month, cut it to whatever proof you decide, because of course there are different proofs of like Navy strength gin usually runs between 90 and 95%. We'll bottle it and you'll be able to buy it and take it home. It'll have our gin label on it because legally I'm not going to create a new label for every single person. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the nice things about the TTB is gin is gin is gin. Mm -hmm. So that's the January Jackalope Society special. And so if you are part of the Jackalope Society, one, you have first priority on reserving a spot. Yeah. Two, this class you're not paying for, but you're paying for. You'll pay something, but it'll be significantly less than. Okay. the public would get it for and it, okay. it, it won't be month it, it won't be much it's it's the benefit of being the member okay um so throughout the year in the jackalope society you're going to have more of these i hope to do a one every month seminars yep and it um, might not necessarily be a class okay. but it might be a special product that only jackalope society members i can already tell you that february is going to be you're going to get a bottle of bourbon nice and again, it's access to it. There's I know you mentioned this. I don't know if you've or if you've finalized it, but you were talking about maybe having a Jackalope Society happy hour once in a while. Yeah. Where you're going to give them further discount. Yep. I think you said, right? Like barrel, barrel tasting trips. Ah, OK. OK. Yeah. I know we were kind of riffing about that right. beforehand, but you were talking about doing some of those as well. Right. And a couple of the couples have actually said, how about a real trip? Jeez. Brewer game. Packer game. <laughs> Your team. I think, it, I think it might end up being something more like uh, Bourbon Trail, where you land in Nashville. and I'd go along on that one. I better join the Jackalope Society. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's something that we're working on I wanted to get out. Um, and then uh, also one other update. We have wine now at the distillery by the glass. We're not going to be your destination to get a bunch of wines. Right. But we've partnered with Fowler Wine. Rob you support Fowler. local Yep, local he's a local vendors, guy. Right? And I like, and he, so he's got a bourbon barrel aged red wine. Bourbon barrel aged red wine. Very nice. Um, so as far as varietals are concerned, what, is it a, is it a blend? Uh, I believe it's a red table wine. Yes. Awesome. But it's very good. And uh, so that's available by the glass. Um, if it goes well, we'll probably add a white. And that'll be the extent of it. We'll have a red and a white for those people who are want, they want to be with their significant other or their family, but they don't drink cocktails. We're going to try and provide that. Well, like, like my wife, uh, at times she prefers uh, a vodka tonic. Yeah. And, and a lot of, I'd probably say it's 50-50. She likes a good glass of wine once yeah. in a while. And so you, you're, you're, you're supporting someone locally. Yes. You're providing an alternative for someone who maybe does not want a, a, a spirit cocktail. Right. But wants a glass of wine. Yep. 
And we hope to do the same with beer, but we're still in the process of that. Okay. So more to come on that. More to come. Probably next pod, maybe the next pod. Uh, and then um, a couple shout outs. I'd like to thank O'Brien's Liquor Store, downtown Stillwater. Yes, great. Well, oh, classic, classic liquor store. Oh, for joining the family. They uh, provide uh, several of our spirits. I want to say it's four. Um, and then the others, in case those of you who are listening want to know, you can buy us at Jerry's in Woodbury. Uh, you can buy us at the Liquor Barrel in Matamidi. Perfect. And you can get us at the Cellars in uh, Stillwater's, Stillwater's well across from the Cub. And I think we're adding Lakeland's Luckies, but I haven't gotten an update on that. I'm, I'm pretty under, uh, at least that's my belief. Also, please remember Pull Tab Sports and the Coctology Podcast are sponsored by Jimmy's Salads and Dips. I know you're a fan. Well, I'll tell you, uh, the last podcast that I was with you, we talked about smoky drinks, right? Oh, we right, talked about right, that. Right, yeah. They've got a smoky dip. It is solid. You should try it. It's it's great. Well, I know that Grandpa Jimmy was considered a mad scientist. Okay. So I bet he messed around on the other side of the wall just like I do. Right. Um, they're definitely, you know, they're family owned. It's mm -hmm. a homegrown Minnesota product. Mm -hmm. I think you can buy it at Cub. Um, I know we're past the holidays, but I still think people are getting together uh, maybe to celebrate wet January where they're buying mostly Lucky Guys spirits, but they need chips and dip and salad dressings to go with it. And what better than the, something called the Holy Smoke Dip? Right. Let's do that. And don't also, not just Jimmy's, but Joe Mama's Salsa is another one that sponsors us. We're grateful for it. Another homegrown product. Um, they're made in River Falls. Yeah. And we, you know, my love of one uh, salsa to Joe Mama and three River Falls because I am a Falcon. You so, are. Right. There that's we right. Go. Yeah. I, God, sometimes I forget that's where you met top five all time. Right. And I'm, you know, River Falls is like God's country to me. And so make sure you ride the flavor wave that's been going on all year long with Joe Mama's salsa. Load up on Joe Mama's salsa, Jimmy's dips and salads, and support Coctology and Pull Tab Sports. Well, Pete, I appreciate you joining me. It's been a lot of fun, guy, as always. And thanks to you for joining us today. Um, I would say that's probably the most in-depth podcast we've done into the science mm -hmm. and background of the spirits. Hope you'd enjoy it. Hope you... Uh, Some might call it an educational podcast today. Some might call it an educational podcast. Historical educational. Definitely historical. So yeah. nobody likes Alexander Hamilton, turns out. Not at all. But we hope Love you've enjoyed... Yeah. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast if you're out there, come and see us. Uh, Hudson's our distillery, 101 Second Street. So get lucky, and thanks for listening. But I'm not